Welcome, everyone, to a new podcast produced by Latinique. This is Latinique's weekly politics refresh. I'm one of your three hosts today. My name is Matthew Sparrier. I'm an international politics writer for the politics section at Latinique magazine. Joining us today, we have two of our great writers who are going to be joining me weekly. And we're going to talk about the daily news around the United States and also around the world. Joining me first is Ruth. Ruth, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. So, yeah, I'm one of the three hosts as well. Um, I'm sitting across the world from the other two. I'm in Germany right now. And, yeah, I'm happy to be here and to talk about all the stuff that's going on in the world. So, yeah, I'm really excited. And We're super excited. So, I'm giving, yeah. And, yeah, I'm giving the word to Robert. Hi, I'm Robert. I'm a uh, political correspondent with Latinique as well. Um, I am a 2020 class graduate of Northwestern University. Uh, I study political science, and that explains why I am interested in politics. Uh, I'm looking forward to discussing um, domestic and foreign issues uh, with the two of you as well. And with that, uh, we're just going to jump right into our first domestic issue, which is the uh, stimulus bill currently that had uh, just passed the Senate um, with some minor alterations tailored to um, more moderate Democrats. And um, we're going to talk about what's in it and whether or not we think it's going to pass the House. All right. So just a brief overview of what it contains. Um, this is from the Washington Post. The relief measure includes a new round of up to $1,400 stimulus checks for millions of Americans, $350 billion for cash-strapped cities and states, $130 billion for schools, and other sizable sums for a wide array of programs. Um, personally, I think that the economic stimulus package that's passed, whatever form it takes through our um, debate, is necessary to get us um, and our economy and our citizens in a more secure place on the back end of COVID. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you know, typically I, I'm sure I'll be the resident uh, libertarian right winger on this podcast. But the truth of the matter is during a global pandemic, um, the fact that it's taken, you know, this long to get relief in the hands and, and such little relief, to be honest with you. I mean, um, over here in the United States, you know, it's been a total of what, like at the end of the day, it's gonna be around $3,000 for a year of having businesses shut down, people losing their jobs, record high unemployment, and hundreds of thousands of Americans losing their loved ones. Um, the fact that, you know, they sort of sneakily decide to put in the $1,400 stimulus package, and it really is peanuts compared to this bill that they're passing. Um, and even so, it narrowly passed the house with some stipulations. and so. I'd be wondering what you guys think about sort of, you know, the denial of $15 minimum wage. I know I'm sure that's probably something that you guys were looking forward to. Um, I know a lot of people, especially on Twitter, were really upset. But, you know, $300 per week in unemployment payments until early September. I mean, is this stimulus package going to be enough to get us out of the hole we're in? Yeah, I think it's hard to say because, like, there are these economical issues you have to face during a pandemic and for what I can say what I saw in Germany is that the people who lost their job the people who struggled the most they also struggled the most uh, 
with accepting the rules and following the politicians. So mm. it's not only giving financial aid, but also like how to lead the country during such a like bad crisis. And yeah, for me, like the $15 per hour, is it? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, the basic like right you have to get the money you deserve to work for. So I think it should be. That's the least they can do, but. <laughs> um, so I think I think this plan will be very effective in some ways and leave a lot of people behind in others. Um, the U.S. economy is already slated and projected to return to its pre-COVID state by the middle to uh, mid-fall of 2021, which is great. Um, I do think, however, that like 08, like the financial crisis of 08, um, we will see people who had productive jobs either leave the labor market entirely, which will, um, you know, it, that will affect our unemployment numbers in a way that makes it look like it's positive, but it's actually leaving people behind. Um, and I think that, you know, this form, it's Keynesian economics at its best is good for the general economy, but it forgets about people at the bottom. Um, in terms of minimum wage, I, I mean, if you look at, if you look at what it should be adjusted for inflation and price growth, it should be $24, right? If you just kept it steady um, with what was going on in the economy at whole. Um, but I don't know, I don't know if this was necessarily the place to pass that. Uh, even though it's got broad support with Americans, it clearly does not have broad support with senators. Um, but that is its own huge issue. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Just in general, I um, really dislike like um, trying to shoehorn separate issues that should have their own bills, maybe. You know, if you want to pass a $15 minimum wage, obviously you need broad support from the Senate, right? Obviously, but to sort of tack it onto this bill that is really important, right? Like to sort of like hold up negotiations to sort of get these issues in now, um, it just sort of left a bad taste in my mouth. I think right now the United States needs to just get money in the hands of people and needs to get money in the hands of small businesses. And it really failed to with the stimulus bill that passed, you know, during the Trump administration. Um, you know, it was it was one time. I mean, they held up passing the bill because he wanted to put his name on it. Like these were the priorities that, you know, they were uh, halting us from passing it the first time. And so I'm sure they'll try again. I mean, the Biden administration, they have the Senate narrowly, of course. Right. I mean, I know they're trying to get rid of the filibuster. Um, they'll have their opportunity to pass that bill, I'm sure. So I think right now get it through. And we have here, you know, what are the odds of it passing the House? I think it's it's got to pass, right? I mean, I think 100%. I think they're like 99, 100%, something in that ballpark. There's, there's almost no way that, you know, a more, a like a, a lesser version of the bill, which is essentially going back, is going to have less support from, you know, like the Democrats that defected and didn't vote for it, or the Republicans, you know, that are almost on that edge of being able to vote for it, but they were saying it's too expensive. It's going to 
balloon the deficit, which are ridiculous arguments, but um, you know, that's what they do. I, I actually don't mind the, the argument about the deficit. It's just, it's coming from a place where they have no standing. Right. right. It, that's, that's what I mean. It's like, if you, if you approved the, if you approved the tax bill that, you know, expanded our deficit because it uh, followed Reaganomics, which is proven not to work now. Um, you know, if you, if you cut taxes on the 1% and then um, turn around and say, no, we can't help everyone else because we did, because of the deficit's too large. I, I don't know. <laughs> there are some people that, you know, they're the Thomas Masseys who are, you know, they, uh, they believe in not passing bills and Hey, I mean, that's their stance, they're principled, but it is funny, obviously to see certain senators who were totally okay with increasing spending, passing all of these spending bills during a Republican administration to then go, Whoa, guys, come on. We really got to budget here. We're <laughs> blowing it out. I mean, come on, we can't be like crazy. I mean, it, it's just the height of hypocrisy, really. And um, it doesn't surprise me, but it just really is funny to watch it happen in real time. Yeah, I mean, always the part where you have to, yeah, look at the argument and look at who said what and when, like you, like you said, Matt, it's when it's a Republican era, then people are who are Republican are for that stimulus bill or for a certain part. And yeah, so you, I think the, like a big question is also the voters have to ask themselves, like, how is party even, well, how can you trust the politicians that they do the right thing, even though it's like someone from the Democrats who like explained the bill or the other way around. So I think that's one of the like most important things that for example we or me i see as a non-us citizen like how can it be all the politics and especially such important bills who have to pass for people i mean even though it's like there should be more there should be more money there should be more help for people who really suffer and also schools and everything around this but still I ask myself, how can it be like that? It's still about the politics, about the people, and not about the subject itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean it's just it it speaks to how polarized as a nation we've really become. When seventy percent yeah. of Americans, four out of ten Trump supporters, support this stimulus package, and yet you have every Republican consistently voting against it, having people force the bill to be read out loud in its entirety and scoring political points that way. I mean, that is, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's plain yeah. simple. One, uh, yeah. interesting, one interesting point I want to say is that what really illuminated some of the, um, yeah, there's an old saying that, you know, Washington, D.C., uh, this is Hollywood for ugly people. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the saying because Representative Justin Amash was on a podcast that I was listening to recently. And the reason that he was isolated and sort of thrown to the side so many times is because he made the point that these people are given by their committees sort of talking points that they want them to say on television, and that a lot of senators and House representatives treat it as a television show. And so they're yelling and they're screaming at each other, 
but as soon as the cameras go off, they walk over to each other. How you doing? How's your kids? You know, and they're friends, which I'm not opposed to civility and politics, but to sort of get the people polarized when you yourself are really like, this is just a game, you know, we're hanging out is really, it's sinister. I really, I mean, it's pretty evil. And one thing you are seeing also, I want to say is you're starting to see Republicans get away from Reaganomics and libertarian economics with people like Josh Halsey, um, who are populist right-wing figures who are just saying, frankly, we don't care about the economics anymore. We don't care about cutting spending anymore. Um, they're, you know, the, the party of Reagan is dead, quite frankly. So yes, the party of Reagan is certainly dead. Trump absolutely was either the final nail or the entire coffin. Um, but I wouldn't say that conservative economics are dead because whenever they get a chance to pass tax cuts on the very rich, they still pass them. Whenever they get a chance to cut spending or make it harder for Democrats to spend, they do that. They've never, I mean, they've never under a Republican cared about the deficit. It, you go back in history, they just don't care. Maybe to just be more specific is that the right wing, um, sorry, the people don't believe. Yeah, so I, I would agree like with you that. Said. So yeah. you're saying, you know, four in 10 Trump supporters, they want the stimulus bill. You're starting to see them support Republicans who just leave economics at the door. And it is pure culture issues. And it is pure, yeah, like you know, Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, it is pure culture, uh, abortion, and gun rights. The spending, they don't care about anymore. Um, well, it's really interesting, right? Because that the people that care about those issues, though, are not a winning coalition for them nationally, right? We saw are. that in the last election. And they are hard committing to it. Like, the more that they do that, in my opinion, the more that they lose the suburban vote, which is what they lost in this last election that cost them the election ultimately. If I you think, uh, wine moms yeah. cost them the election, quite frankly. <laughs> sure. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things suburban that women. went into Biden winning, right? Suburban women. But also, I mean, if you just when you look at the maps now, like now that all the votes have been counted and assessed, you see that the area around cities that went Democrat are much larger than they were in 2016. And it's, it's really a question of whether or not Republicans are going to double down on Trumpism, which they clearly are. Um, I, don't, I don't see them retaking the White House with a message like that. Did you, either of you happen to see the CPAC speech? I tuned in for about five minutes and I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Take it I anymore. Just, um, so I, I sort of read a summary. And I did as well. It, it was so amazing to me that after the failures of this guy for the past four years that they are doubling down that trump cpac speech was about we have to build a wall we have to end the wars which hey, i'm i'm for that's fine but the, the fact of the matter is he had the chance to do it and he didn't do it and and so they're just getting bamboozled because they say they want someone to fight for them but they're picking someone who's just so unimpressive and someone who failed them so hard that if they double down on trumpism um, they're never going to get elected nationally again. I think I think the Senate races that they're going to have before them are going to be brutal in this upcoming election. I mean, you have you have traditional Republicans retiring, um, 
and you're going to have Trumpian candidates winning those primaries. Um, going up against, you know, like the uh, the Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania, I forget his name right now, but he is a blue collar working class Democrat who plays perfectly for that state. Um, and if you put him in a general election against someone who is behaving like Trump and saying all those crazy things, you will have you will have them bleed out in the Senate, which is their last real form of control over this government. Yeah, I, I just don't understand the strategy. Um, you know, I am I do follow a lot of right wing media people, and when they talk about how they're approaching this stuff nationally, I mean, if they want to do more economically populist things, I, I sort of get that, right? Like, but I, then uh, who are you caucusing with? You're caucusing with Bernie Sanders. Right, that, that, your, that's what your I mean. ultimate enemy. <laughs> uh, you know they well because frankly the United States. Um, I made this point in another podcast that I was on uh, a few days ago. If anyone wants to check it out, it's on YouTube. The Descent. Go ahead. But what the Republicans didn't have was an answer for people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, who I don't agree with AOC's prescriptions on many things, but what she does get is diagnosing the problem. That when you walk around this country and you see the homelessness, you see people being bankrupted from healthcare costs, you see the opioid epidemic, you see the crumbling infrastructure, to just pretend that everything is okay and, and you know what we need is less spending on infrastructure or something, it's just delusional. I mean, people can see it with their eyes that something is wrong here, and I don't agree yeah. with AOC or, or Bernie's prescriptions necessarily. But to just ignore the problem is delusional. It's not working either, which is great for Democrats and terrible for Republicans. Um, yeah. yeah. Ruth, I mean, final, Ruth doesn't final have thought. this problem in Germany. Yeah, final thought. What's the German perspective? Yeah, I'm just, that's always the part where I think people who don't have a two party system like struggle to understand that how can it, like for us, you have to build a coalition, for example. There are more than one party that is the ruling coalition. So it's never the one thing. It's never the one main topic of one party, but it's always a mix and you have to do compromises and stuff. So we're used to not getting like the extremes of everything. So I think that's one lesson that American politics should learn by now that especially if you want to win the Senate, if you want to get back in the game, you, you have to see what the other party is doing and then just pick it up and try to, like you said, Matt, you have to give answers and you have to take the topic and yeah, see how you can move on and work with it and not just be, like you said, delusional and be some stuff that doesn't make any sense and will not bring anything further. So, yeah. But we will see how it will turn out. And I mean, it's important to see how people will react if everything is passed and everything is um, going great. So, yeah. Very cool. Very nice. Well, that was our, our first topic. I know we do want to switch over because all of us here at Latinique, especially on this podcast, we're very interested in international politics specifically. Oh, we love international politics here. And one thing that you brought up and put on the docket to talk about, Robert, was the Biden strikes in Syria that happened over the past week or, or week and a half. And I was wondering if you could just sort of expound on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the last in the last week, week and a half, like you said, uh, President Biden uh, had his first military operation, um, military action um, against militant groups backed by Iran in Syria. Um, so this is in response to attacks that killed a U.S. private army contractor and injured several U.S. Uh, soldiers and contractors. Um, so there are retaliatory strikes that the Biden administration justified through both the UN Charter and Article Two of the Constitution. Um, significantly, uh, it recently came out that Biden called off a second strike against uh, similar targets um, because right before it was supposed to happen, they received credible intelligence that women and children were present. Um, there's a lot to talk about here, um, but I'd love to I'd love to hear your uh, input as the resident libertarian, Matt, uh, before I give my stance. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to go on here. Um, you know, I think we have to sort of take a step back because just focusing in on this strike in particular, I saw some people making some hot takes on Twitter that this is sort of um, going to exacerbate the conflict. I think. What interests me was when I read that piece that you put in there, um, you sort of have to realize, like, so these were strikes. So there's an American army base in Erbil, Iraq, and it was being fired at from an Iranian group in Syria. And so my question is, you know, what the group said, and of course, they are probably very bad people, right? I mean, they're just <laughs> launching rockets at people. But what they said was the American occupation will like basically never sleep. And I just have to wonder, like, at, at what point is the United States having military bases in Iraq, which is a majority Shiite country? Um, we have credible intelligence due to leaked cables that the parliament of Iraq is basically compromised by Iraq. Oh, yeah. Um, it isn't a, you know, there was a talk a long ago when you and I were growing up, or, or all three of us, that they wanted to bring democracy to Iraq. That is not what is going on right now. As it stands currently, Iraq is owned by Iran. And so when you see that American bases are in Iraq, <laughs> American bases are basically in enemy territory. And so to just. I mean, yeah, it, it's. They're, I. I just think that we have no business being in Iraq. I don't think we had any business going there in the first place. When you look at what it spawned, right? We have an endless war that um, has cost billions of dollars, thousands of US lives, and just an untold, often, often untold humanitarian cost for that entire region. Um, and we're losing. Like we, you know, we created a new terrorist group by, uh, in ISIS, um, you know, there's just, there's just no winning there. I, I still can see the justification for the war in Afghanistan, even though it was not handled correctly, in my opinion. Um, and that, you know, we could have done more nation building, more counterinsurgency that would have been with a more humanitarian um, approach. But Iraq never really made sense to me, um, and it still doesn't. Yeah, 
I mean, there is, I don't know if it's an international thing, but we, I know it from German that we have this saying, if you kill one terrorist, there will 10, 10 others will follow. So mm -hmm. it's always a question of, yeah, you can strike back, but it's like in an argument, you will always, there will always something that follow comes that like, it will come, come back and even hit you harder. So the question is, is it, like how good was it planned? Like what is the humanitarian like cost that we have? And also saying like, okay, there were ch women and children at the place so we didn't shoot. Okay, yeah, but still, there were still people in the first strike that were hurt and we don't know who it really was. I mean, yeah, of course there are the intelligence, but that's not enough. So the question is, of course, I mean, the perfect world, world would be without war, but I, what I asked myself is how can you, I mean, you have to react as the US, like they're, you're a global player, so you have to act somehow. So I quite like, what would you say, what would be the more, yeah, valid answer for that? Well, Ruth, I think you hammered on something. It is a good saying that if you kill one terrorist, 10 more will follow, because a lot of times the news media and the military gets caught up using slang. Um, to really cover up the reality of what they're doing. So they'll use words like collateral damage. Now, what is collateral right. damage? Collateral damage is- Women and children. Killing women and children. You know, when Barack Obama wanted to start using more drones to launch a drone war, the justification was for it was, well, there's not gonna be as many troops on the ground. It's gonna be more of a scalpel, scalpel. It's not a scalpel if you're on the receiving end of a, a 500 pound bomb, right? Like that's that's not a that's not a surgical strike, you know, blowing up a building. I, I mean, so these, yeah, go ahead. So for me, drone strikes are um, are they're incredibly complicated because when used correctly, they can be a scalpel. You know, you may not feel like that on the receiving end, but if you are a militant or a, a terrorist organization, um, there are you know threats incredible threats that make you change how you operate. You can't use technology in the same way. Um, you can't have real communication with each other because it's traceable. Um, it limits your capabilities. My biggest problem with drone strikes is that we don't have clear rules of engagement with them. We do not, um, we do not call off strikes often when collateral damage, which is women and children, um, or just innocent, you know, innocent young men are there. We don't have, um, we, we didn't under Obama. I doubt we did during Trump. Um, we didn't have, he, he increased it. Okay. He, he so wanted, we, then uh, we, then we didn't have, we didn't have guidelines and, you know, he drops the biggest I, and the best. Oh, well, Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's um, when we had, when we had, when, when you have the right information, which it sounds like this strike, which was on a weapons smuggling operation and a weapons depot, it sounds like this strike was kind of the best version of it. And you took the extra step of preventing casualties, um, which is actually like Ruth was saying, one of the key mechanisms for terrorist recruitment is showing videos of women and children blown up by US strikes. If you can avoid those things, there is a place for drone strikes in the U.S. arsenal. But if you're not willing to do that, then there definitely isn't. I think 
when it comes to Iraq and Syria at this point, um, and the need to sort of draw back is the unfortunate reality that there is no way this ends being clean. There, oh, totally. I mean, if the United States withdraws, it, it's going to be ugly. The reality is, it's going to be ugly. It's sort of well, we saw we saw what withdrawal did in in 2014. It you know it spawned a new militant group that was able to take over a large section of Iraq. Like these yeah, are Iraq and Syria, right? Iraq and, and, and Syria. Interestingly, yeah. you know, interestingly enough, one of their recruitment efforts was stepping over that line, the Sykes-Picot line of Iraq and Syria, planting a flag and saying, you know, fuck you, occupiers. We beat, <laughs> we, we beat your ass, right? I mean, you're talking, they're, they're yeah. using grievances from, you know, I think the Sykes-Picot Treaty was after World War One. Yeah, I mean, like, this is how far it's gone back. And so at some point, we need to reorient the entire strategy because um, it, it, we're just continuing down this line. I don't see how it gets better anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's the point. There's no hope at the end. Like, there's no plan how to not fix it, but how to have a like somewhat solution. There's always, all these strikes are still there momentarily. They're just for one part of time and then something new happens. I mean, everything you do will um, lead to a reaction of the people and killing people, even like, especially women and children that are, or innocent people, that will just make the problem worse and just give, like militant groups the argument to say yeah we can fight back we have the right to defend ourselves even though like we don't have to discuss their ideology there's still the problem that should be asked how can the u.s like act without giving them this argument without giving them the evidence to react and to yeah get even deeper in this problem i think and i mean something it, else. You, oh god, oh god. No, no, please, Matt. I was say, I think something else is we have to step back from the entire strategy we're taking towards the region of the Middle East. And so a lot of these operations are for, for example, Israel. I think Israel is strong enough to defend itself. I mean, I went there three years ago. Great place. Great people. Um, well, not, a, not only are they Saudi strong Arabia. enough, but they're, they're now in a diplomatic position to do so, right? Being recognized yeah, by uh, Arab nations in that region. They are. A lot of the reason we're getting involved in these conflicts isn't necessarily just Israel. They're a smaller part, but it's really Saudi Arabia's Cold War with Iran. This is our commitments to the crown in Saudi Arabia. And you saw how sort of, you know, far we will go recently when the Biden administration said the punishment for Jamal Khashoggi's killing will be that uh, MBS isn't allowed to come to the White House. I mean, come on. I mean, they, they yeah. sanctioned a few underlings, but let's be real. Who who ordered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi? I that mean, was MBS. That wasn't well, just some random guy in the Saudi state. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, if we take a step back, like you're suggesting, this region has been relevant in global history to occupiers like the US, like Britain and France before. Um, and, you know, emerging is China as a new form of occupier through their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, this region is relevant because of its oil, 
and previously because of its location for trade routes. Those are two things that no longer, well, the, you know, the, the trade routes don't matter anymore because global shipping is by sea or by air um, and it's faster and cheaper. Oil is a resource that while significant, the US is now self-sufficient for military purposes at the very least, if not in totality. Um, and in the future won't be relevant because it can't be because the world's gonna end if it remains this relevant from climate change. So you have a region that is consuming time, resources, effort, it is destroying lives and it is causing untold human consequences as well. And this is a region that won't be relevant in 50 years. So why is it, why are we still there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the people who are making these decisions, it, it's that thing where you get so involved, you can't see the forest for the trees, where you have these people who are brought up in these schools of thought, their entire employment and their promotion depends on them really focusing on, okay, like, hey, I'm, I'm going to become the expert in Yemen and AQAP. And so for some reason, you know, there's Al Qaeda behind every single bush, right? Like this is what becomes, this is what justifies everything is that they're so sucked into the region that it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, I think you have to, like you said, take a step back and see if you're even like, is it even okay to be there still in this region after so many years and what like i mean american soldiers are going there so it's not just the foreign people if you talk about that but it's all it's american and iranian and iraqi people so the question is like how can you justify it and how is it possible to change the narrative also about the topic that like you said robert that like it's important now the region but it will change so you have to like go with the time and also yeah just take a step back and not be big brother watching and acting and just ask yourself if you are even like is it valid that you are there are you allowed even allowed i mean there's no one to control you but is it allowed to be there are these troops uh, like relevant and or is it just because you have some kind of loyalty to someone else which you should question for sure. Well, I think, I think that plays a little bit into our, our third topic and Robert is writing a piece now based on the justification of using military force by the executive branch, um, you know, using article yes. two of the constitution. And so, our, you know, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're writing and how it's relevant to this. Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Um, so article two of the constitution grants the quote unquote executive power to the American president. Um, it's never defined, it's rarely, it's not expanded upon, it's not, it's debated um, by constitutional scholars and members of Congress and presidents themselves. However, throughout the, throughout the centuries that the office of the presidency has existed, every president in the chair has expanded what the executive power can do in some way. Um, you know, Lincoln used it to raise troops uh, to defend the Union in the Civil War, which at the time 
you have to do, right? You can't wait for Congress to authorize this if you're under attack. However, that's something new that the president can now do. Um, FDR greatly expanded what the office of the president is capable of for regulating the economy. Um, and then also the executive branch has just been rapidly expanding to deal with uh, not only a, um, a union of states that's grown from 13 to 50, uh, but also, you know, we're now a global player in a way that I don't think the founding fathers could have ever imagined. Um, I mean, they probably could have, they're very smart, but I don't think they spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, and they expressly and, didn't want to be, right? Yeah, they, they were very protectionist people. Um, the point, the, the real point of this is that we basically now have a unitary executive um, who has as much power as any, um, as all the branches of government combined, because through executive order, you can make laws through um, and through you know control over the military you can like he like Biden for example he did not get congressional authority to do this um, that's significant that is a US president using the US military to um, do something just at his and his generals um, discretion so my argument in this piece that I'm writing is basically that Congress, uh, has reigned in presidents before uh, by passing laws, um, often through bipartisan majority, uh, because it has to clear the uh, both chambers twice because presidents veto them. Um, but it's necessary now that we rein in what presidents can do, especially under a president that is responsible um, when we've had several irresponsible ones in the past. Can, can I also ask maybe, to just, instead of talk about this in the context of the Middle East, like we have been in the past few minutes, what really worries me in the future, it, it, again, people always think when they're guys in office, it's fine, but they don't realize that the powers they give them get transferred onto the next. And this was the fear with Donald Trump, right? Like if you pass a law and you're saying that the president can do something, Donald Trump luckily- Can now and, do that thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he had a, he was like, um, you know, it's such a shame. I've, I've heard so many like anecdotes of him just not being interested in reading books and he's not interested in learning anything. He's a very much like the last person who talks to him is what his opinion is going to be. He's a genius with a J, man. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that's really but what he is. What, what worries me is the Middle East can't really strike back in a very big way against the United States. China and Russia can. And so is it fair that in the future, this path we're going down because China as a rising power and the United States sort of as a declining power, there is this theory that eventually powers, you know, great powers will fight one another either to protect themselves, you know, and maintain the top dog or as to sort of challenge the top dog. And maybe in the 21st century, that's not as possible anymore, just with technology and you well, know, it's it's how? it's a new form of combat, right? It's these hacks that you see, this intellectual property theft. It is shutting down economy. It is shutting down power grids. It's doing things that you know. While you're not putting troops on the ground, while you're not launching ballistic missiles, you are still engaged in warfare um, of a modern era. Yeah, I think Can that's I? like the 
Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was going to ask Ruth, actually, like from the German perspective, what what is sort of Germany's stance and the EU stance against China? Because the United States, it's very much, you know, we're number one and China thinks, you know, they're going to come up and uh, take the spot. But what's the EU's perspective? You guys are, you know, right there. Well, I think it's for the EU, it's difficult because, I mean, it's not only one country, it's more. So you have to find a compromise and there. I mean, they are always struggling to find the direction they want to go because there are countries like Poland and the Ukraine who are like very right wing nationalism. So they do their own thing. So that's hard to combine. But yeah, I think the problem is, for example, also Germany, like we have strong relationships to China because of the economical thing we produce like germany german factories produce their car parts in china for example in singing the part where the uyghurs live so i didn't know well that. i think they there is this high rank of the human rights like that's one of the basics in the european union but also the european union is not strong enough that we are not like, we're not sure what we want, so we can't fight China, for example. We can't say, okay, we will be against it, you have to do that. There are always these sanctions. That's, it's the same with Russia, for example, after Alexander Navalny. We said, okay, no, that's not going to work for us. We have to sanction you. But they sanctioned, like, some people who have some kind of influence. But still, there are talks. There is stuff going on behind the scenes we don't know about so i think it's hard to say i think that's always the problem with the eu we have to find a step where we are and then see what can we do how can we fight or how can we speak out against stuff we don't like without like getting our ass kicked basically so yeah does Germany still have plans to go forward with the the Nord Stream pipeline. That's obviously extremely oh. important um, in terms of like keeping relationship with Russia. How how are yeah. the people balancing? You know, obviously there's a lot of stuff coming about Russia recently, right? With Alexei Navalny and and stuff like that. But you don't want to jeopardize energy, right? Yeah, I mean that's. I mean now it's Merkel's like last year now in 2021 we will have the election in september and uh to be honest i think the pandemic takes more um like takes all over all the media so there's not a lot about russia only like when alexei navalny was um arrested then yeah but so the problem is well I think a lot of citizens don't know really about the pipeline, the North Stream project. And so they don't speak out. There are no protests or not big protests. So that's one part. And also, I think like Merkel announced that she will go on after Alexei Navalny was arrested. And even like when he was poisoned, she still said that's nothing to discuss about because, yeah, it's hard. We, I mean, we need the pipeline in some way but also we will be so so influenced by russia we will have to like there's nothing we can do without like 
uh, this project is important for us. I would say even more than for Russia. So yeah. Interesting. We will, yeah. Well, it's always interesting when an authoritarian state is exporting a good that, you know, the Democrat, uh, democratic states need, right? Because suddenly everything is fine and it's all, you know, the human rights violations, it's, you know, they don't see them anymore. Um, And also like there, people say that they will go forward and say that will speak out against but i mean we we saw the relations between russia i mean especially putin and merkel were and they talked a lot and they had their discussions but still it's i think there has has to be more and yeah we need to have this pipeline and this project that's important for us but you have to always see how can you justify it how can you explain to people later oh we have this project but we like sell our parts to Russia, so yeah. I also wonder, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, um, is is having this economic relationship with Russia and sort of approaching their human rights abuses maybe uh, from the perspective of, you know, hey, we're an ally, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this and sort of have more give and take rather than a like more standoffish, screw you, because if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, the odds of them changing their mind, I wonder, is less, right? I Whereas mean, if you are close with someone, does it sort of give you more political capital mm, to push them in yeah. a certain direction, in a better direction? I'm just wondering. I mean, that's always the hope. You always hope to get to a point where you agree without having to fight or to scream. But the problem is with giving in in such projects, you. Like you push them, you t- you give them the sign that it's okay or that they will find a way to get through it. So yeah, I think I mean if they if we accept the project, we still we continue to do it. There has to be clear lines. There has to be a dialogue and a discussion about what happened and how it can be that uh, Navalny is in like prison for thirty days. Like what's going on? So I think it's okay. To have, I mean, you need the relations. You can't just say, okay, stop, because then, like, where would we get our stuff from? We need international allies. So, yeah, somehow we have to talk to the bad guy in this way. And I think there is always, there will always be a bad guy. And also, like, as you see, the US is not the perfect ally itself. So, yeah, I think it's what you said, Matt. You have to find a way to take your stand on the human rights violations and say what's going on with also keeping in mind what you need for your own country and how you can justify it. Yeah. I don't but think it's complicated as always. Yeah, of course. I don't I don't think that anyone has ever really changed um you know a regime by having close closer ties like i think whatever putin wants to do in that country he is going to do um i will say though the export of soft power might be a more convincing argument to me at least where you have culture and ideas and thoughts that um because you are allied you know they make it into that society and that can lead to positive change 
Um, but I don't I'm know. Thinking. Yeah. I just don't know. I mean, I can, you know, you can think of hard sanctions working in several cases, in my opinion, anyway, the most prominent of which being the Iran deal, um, the Iran nuclear deal, um, which had a horrible humanitarian cost. However, it did stop them from pursuing nuclear weapons in a convincing way until Trump blew it up. Um, but that's still an example, you know, if we had competent foreign policy under Trump, that we would have remained in that deal. Um, but yeah, I don't, I think you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Power. Uh, yeah, I think soft power um, really just is underappreciated for how I much agree. it, I mean, none of us were alive for the Cold War, right? But eventually what ended up destroying the Soviet Union was a mix of having them overreach their empire and sort of, you know, go into places like Afghanistan and they couldn't economically support fighting on so many fronts, even if they were covert wars. But also people, because you sort of, you know, Radio Free Europe, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that was a real thing that worked, that people in those Soviet states were dreaming about going to the West and going to America. People in East Berlin, they wanted to flee. You know, there was a bunch of people in East Berlin that were dying to get over to West Berlin. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you split power. a city in the middle, right? And then expect oh. information to not flow in some way. Um, that's just, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, I just get worried because another way is, um, I, I wonder if that's going to work for China. Like I, it doesn't seem that it is, you know, China's its well, own beast. I mean, as we see now, you know, the NBA can't exert any cultural, you know, take any real stand, um, other than just having their product in China. Right. Well, I mean, so well, so well, China is its own beast, right? One of the most effective tools that we have actually is students that come over here for our education system and experience Western culture and experience democracy and know what is going on um, in the rest of the world in an unfettered way because they have free access to the internet. And then they go back ready to be put into a higher position in either the Communist Party or some state-backed business because they've been educated in America. That's that's an example of soft power that I think really works. I mean, I guess does it does it work? Is it working? Because Well, it's a, it's a, it's got to be a slow play, right? Like you can't right. I mean, soft power yeah. is something that creeps so, in yeah. over decades. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah China, and China I mean, really it's, me. it's yeah. Nice to have this culture like exchange, but the question is, they go back, will they use their information? Will they take what they learned, what they saw, and build their own opinion and then also speak up against the system that's currently working? Like I think that's if you look at the Chinese system with the party, with the CCP, that's like nearly impossible to be to express your Western standards and your Western ideas without getting like kicked out. And Very also true. let's let let's be frank about this. Like, um, if you're a Han Chinese person that is educated, to them their system is better. They oh, yeah. they see they see I the mean, West and they, they see liberal that's kind of a quite frankly. I mean, I'm saying well, raised that's kind of a really right. large uh, generalization <laughs> to make about Several I think, hundred million yeah. people. 
I mean, well, to them, what they've seen over the past 40 years is they've maintained this this communist flavor, culture, government, while implementing capitalism. While implementing capitalism, they've seen hundreds of millions of people be pulled out of poverty. And in their system, they're seeing sort of a crumbling of the liberal order in, in the West. I mean, the past 30 okay, years well, has not been then, very good for our side, I will say. I mean, I yeah, I just don't see, you know, true. there's a well, lot of- let me pose Let me pose a hypothetical yeah. to you then. Um, what happens when um, the inevitable trend of uh, their population reverses and it starts to decline? Like what happens, you know, there are some figures that's from China that say their population is going to be cut in half by 2050. No, that can't be right. In in 60 years, oh, so 2075. So what what do you do then? Like, how do you? I mean, how do you justify that? You know, the Communist Party did right by us when there are just not enough people. Man, I, I don't know. I would have to take a look at sort of what that study's um, counting on. I'll, Obviously, I'll send it. Had, yeah, please send it. Um, it's like an interesting one because they had the the one child policy, but I don't think they're really adhering to that as much anymore, right? Um, no, definitely I mean, not. Sort of... It's it. You know, the the figures definitely range, and it depends on who you ask. But they are set to lose a significant portion of the population, and they haven't pulled enough of their population out of the poverty line. Mm-hmm. Um, to make a meaningful difference, because when you look at GDP per capita, for example, you have a huge discrepancy um, between that and other developed nations, which then, which, and most of those developed nations experience population decline after their GDP per capita had expanded significantly. So it, every nation has incredible problems mounting before them and for the, for the future. And well, we'll, we'll have to see. I will say one devil's advocate sure. here is that that's your thing, right? One, of course, <laughs> you're going to be hearing that a lot. But one thing that China does have on their side that we, as liberal democracies, do not have, is the ability for long-term planning. And so oh, yeah. they will take these civilizational questions and challenges and really try to have a roadmap of where they want to be in 50, 60 years. The nature of our electoral system. You know, when someone gets elected to president, usually after one year, their job becomes campaigning again. Right. Senators, they get in and the next thing you're doing is sending fundraising emails to me saying, you know, send me five dollars because Mr. Potato Head is the end of Western culture. Right. Like this. Oh, you get those ones. Someone signed me up for my friend Bobby, I think, signed me up for a, a Republican one. And the emails are so insane. Um. I haven't unsubscribed because they're actually hilarious. But that was one of them. It was like, Mr. Potato Head, is is this the end? Dr. Seuss, is this the end? I'm like, oh my God. But China can plan for this population, right? I mean, a lot of Chinese foreign policy is if we don't like the president, we just won't engage with them for four years because we know that you guys are going to have a new one with a completely different, um, you know, different ideas or different ideology in a few years. So. I don't know. I just I, I just really looked it up so that I I'm not providing any false statistics. Um, it is this is from Forbes. China's population is set to drop by half by 2020 by 2100, so 80 years. Okay. Which is significant. I mean, there's time to plan for that, 
but that's, I mean, that's a problem. That's a big <laughs> problem. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, well, I guess we'll have to uh, try I to think solve that's these time. issues on, yeah, we'll, we'll have to try to solve these issues on our next episode. Um, thanks everyone for Sounds tuning good. in. Uh, you know, if for, for all of these great articles, Ruth, you have an article coming out soon? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to write about the Green New Deal of US and the Green Deal of the European Union and how to compare it and how it's going. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Make sure to check that out when it comes out. Robert, give a little plug for your article. on the Absolutely. So uh, uh, Stroke of the Pen, Law of the Land, op-ed about uh, constitutional power of US presidents. That's online now. Um, would love it if you check it out and leave a comment. What do you think? Great. And me, I'm sure I'll get back to writing something that you'll find on the website soon enough. Uh, I have one in the tank, but I don't want to make any promises on this episode. So make sure you tune in next week. This is something we're releasing every single week. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Robert. My name is Matt Spurrier. Thank you guys for tuning into Latinique's Politics Refresh. Talk to you next time.